Hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. <clears throat> Excuse me, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, along with my beautiful wife, Janet, and we are streaming live from the Team Needham Abode Podcast Studio. So, and we are super excited on our midweek podcast to welcome Dr. Kelly Victory to our show today. She is going to be talking about the dangers of propag- propagandized big pharma. And as you guys know, Jen and I are both pharmacists and we have talked many times on this show how, you know, big pharma has really controlled healthcare. And what it's really done is it's made um, treating disease um, profitable um, instead of fixing lifestyle problems. So because most 85 percent of all diseases that are treated in this country are lifestyle related. So you're, you're looking at two pharmacists here that largely do not believe in drugs to treat most long term chronic conditions because they can be corrected by by your lifestyle. So we're going to be getting into that. We're also going to be getting into Kelly's history. She has a history in public health way before the before the covid scamdemic was started. Um, and actually, she specializes in disasters like that. So before COVID, so we're going to talk about how we grade it, how how did our federal government do during the COVID um, scamdemic? So Kelly, welcome to our show. Thanks very much for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah. So Kelly, give us a little bit about your history. Um, I actually saw you on the Dr. Drew show. We talked a little bit about that. I I, when I was a teenager in college, I watched, I watched Dr. Drew on MTV. So <laughs> yeah. that's how I know Dr. Drew and Adam Carolla. I, I love them going back and forth. <laughs> well, again, th- thanks for having me. Yes, I am a trauma and emergency physician by training. I practiced uh, hospital-based trauma medicine for many, many years uh, and subsequently became a what I call a student of disasters. I really became interested in, you know, although we're very good in hospitals at treating uh, trauma one-on-one, you know, the single gunshot wound, the single car accident, even two or three at a time, you know, burn victims who come in. But I became interested in what we would do and how we would train and respond when the big bad thing happened, when you ended up with 50 or 150 or God forbid, more than that people at the same time, mass casualty. And I had the opportunity to, to break away and study with not only many branches of the federal government, including FEMA uh, and much of the military, but also with the Israeli military and how they planned for and responded to some big disasters. Uh, And then I uh, was invited to participate through a program at the Harvard School of Public Health and the Kennedy School of Government at, um, at Harvard to train what they called meta leaders, people who were prepared to deal with these, the biggest, the baddest, the worst ever, you know, unanticipated issues that might happen. Uh, I now have spent the last 10 years really immersed in public health. Um, I know a lot about Obamacare and was very much involved in the Obamacare debate before the legislation was passed. I ran a company uh, that managed the healthcare for Fortune 100 and Fortune 500 companies and their employees. So I learned a lot about how healthcare really impacts business and fundamentally impacts the bottom line, allows or disallows companies, for example, to remain competitive on a world market, you know, world stage. Uh, and then I, all of that, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, 
came together, it all coalesced during the past three years. My, my background in public health, my background in disaster management and, and response, and my background in understanding companies and how companies manage their healthcare uh, all sort of came together in the perfect storm uh, during this pandemic. So tell us, how did we do during this government-created <laughs> pandemic? Uh, what's our grade on an A to an F scale? Oh, Sean, I, this was an abject failure from a public health perspective for so many reasons. Let me uh, just try to uh, sort of illuminate a few of the of the issues. I'd say from the beginning, the role of public health, the mandate of public health is to consider the impact of any particular problem and also any particular solution on the entire public. It's very different from when I enter a room in my office uh, to see a patient or when I'm in the emergency department and I go in and you come in as my patient. In those situations, it's a one-on-one -on -one interaction and you are my sole interest, your best interest and your outcome. Unfortunately, that is not how public health works. When I put my public health hat on, I not only am considering what's good for you, Sean, but if this is a mass casualty or something infecting millions of people, thousands of people, whatever it is, I am obligated in public health to consider the impact on everyone and not just their physical health, frankly, also their, their spiritual health, their psychological health, emotional health, financial health. So from the beginning, when the pandemic hit, the people at the helm of the response, I don't care if you're talking about the president or Anthony Fauci or people running, you know, the governors, their role should have been to say, it is not about just COVID, COVID the virus, and not adjust, you know, when I hear people say, if we can save just one life, no, no, that is not the role of public health to save one life. It's to look at the entire public. So when they started doing things like suggesting a lockdown, something that we've known for decades is far more devastating, is far more economic, emotional, psychological devastation than it will ever help in stopping the spread of a respiratory virus. They were off the rails. When they started talking about implementing mask mandates, we've known for decades that masks do nothing appreciable to stop the spread of respiratory viruses and in fact are very damaging in other ways, both you know, uh, emotionally, psychologically, and physically. They started making up constructs like social distancing, absolutely made up construct, makes no sense. They knew it. They've now, three years later, acknowledged it. But it wasn't simply a nuisance to do it. It was devastating. Small businesses were spending money they didn't have putting up plexiglass shields and one-way stickers on the floor. And we taught little children to be afraid of others. You know, they're on the play, you know, playground screeching six feet distance. You know, we, th these were things that weren't just nonsensical. They were harmful. And then fast forward to the vaccine program. Uh, everyone has known from the beginning of time, you know, vaccinology is very, very complex business. I've said for a long time, the human immune system is the last great frontier of medicine. 
The immune system doesn't always respond the way we think it will. So the idea that you would create and launch a, quote, vaccine in record time, in a matter of months, without any of the long-term studies for either efficacy or safety was absolutely unconscionable. So when you put the entire thing together, the entire pandemic from a public health perspective was predicated on fear. They acted as if all of us were at equivalent risk when we knew from the beginning that was not the case. They employed uh, concepts uh, that, that they, or they implied that they were concepts of public health that absolutely we knew were flawed. You never, ever isolate the masses to protect the few. You isolate the few to protect the masses. Quarantining healthy people isn't a thing. That's called tyranny. There is no such thing as quarantining healthy people. So I, I can't, I, I could go on for the entire show talking about the failure of the public health response, but suffice to say, we will be, this will go down as truly the greatest travesty of public health, certainly in my lifetime and likely in history. It, it's just amazing going back through this from three years ago and just realized how scammed we were. I mean, the lockdowns, the masks, the, the, the vaccines. And I had a great conversation with our local health district um, um, uh, doctor, medical director. And he was kind enough to talk to me for an hour. And, you know, it's interesting. And I'm sure that they had talking points that they were giving by people. Mm -hmm. Because it's interesting what you just said. He said, oh, well, under my watch as a health district um, um, medical director, I can't lose one person to COVID. Right. And, right. and like that's not really what public health is. It's not about that one person. It's about everybody. Um, and really what you have to really think about is also, let's not forget about, let's not forget about individual freedoms. Let, let, let's remember that because ultimately that's what we should worry about is individual liberty is what we should worry about. Yeah. Well, if you, can you imagine if you were, if you were a general in an army and your viewpoint was, I can't lose one soldier, I promise you, you will lose the war. You will I, never I, win. You will exactly. Right. You uh, will unfortunately, never win. and I'm not turning, you know, a callous, you know, eye to to uh, to the death and suffering of individuals. Mm -hmm. I'm fundamentally, first and foremost, a physician. But if you don't understand your role as a public health official, then you need to get out. Because when you, if your viewpoint is we cannot allow one person to die, you will absolutely harm many, many more people in that attempt to do that. Respiratory viruses exist. People die, unfortunately, of influenza every year. Um, we cannot stop that. And you cannot tread, number one, as you said, on the civil liberties of the masses or fundamentally harm. Far more people died as a result of the response to the pandemic than from COVID, the virus, by an order of magnitude. UNICEF, for example, they estimate that a quarter of a million children starved to death as a result of supply chain issues and food um, food problems than ever than died of COVID. Think about that. We starved to death a quarter of a million children worldwide because of the botched response. That's a failure of public health. 
Well, I, I need to jump in and just say, you know, on the phone, counseling clients or listening to clients, many times what this created was actually um, from the medical perspective, from our physicians to our other providers, nurse practitioners, PAs, and hospitals, patients became or the public became actually very questioning of our our knowledge and, and what our intent was. Yeah. And so I had people that did not even want to step out of their house to even step foot in a hospital because they felt like if they went, they would die. Or if they went and saw their doctor, they would die. So their trust that we taken from them about the knowledge and how to take care of them has been thrown out the window. And we, you know, how, how long is it going to take before people are going to go, okay, I'm going to go step back in this arena. Well, I, I have to tell you, Jen, I think you're hitting the nail on the head. And the big, my big concern is that when the next thing comes along and there will be a next thing, sure. we are going to be hard pressed to get the public to listen to us yep. as healthcare professionals or public health professionals, because they rightly so have adopted the attitude. I'm not listening to y'all. You, you know, you let us down a really bad path last time. And I think I'll, you know, I'll figure it out on my own. Furthermore, you point out something, Janet, that I think is underestimated. The number of people who didn't get routine health care for the past three years, particularly in the first two years of the pandemic, out of fear of going to the hospital because they were being told, you know, don't go in, you know, or you take your life in your hands. Many physicians tragically, unconscionably shut down their practices. We're only doing telehealth. So people weren't getting routine care for everything from hypertension to diabetes. People didn't get screenings for cancer screenings. Cancer cancer screenings, you know, colonoscopies, you know, Mm -hmm. mammograms, these things weren't done. So, you know, we would see people in the ER come in with with chest pain. You'd say, how long have you had the chest pain? And they'd say, you know, five days. And you'd ask, why didn't you come in earlier? And they would Mm -hmm. say, I was afraid. This is something we harmed people by the response. And that needs to be, we cannot stop pointing that out. This was a public health disaster that we was created because of the response to COVID, not COVID itself. Well, and what's happened is that, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of pharmacists, doctors, and hospitals, and and just the healthcare professionals that have lost a lot of credibility. And I think, unfortunately, Kelly, I think doctors have done it the worst because, you know, you guys were put on a pedestal and for good reason. You're the most educated people in the United States, in our country, you know, and looked at as the smartest people in our country. And some of the things that your colleagues did are unbelievable, unbelievable. Well, I, I will tell you that, you know, the greatest, uh, the, the toughest thing for me in this entire three years is exactly is exactly that, Sean. Um, my disappointment with my own colleagues, with my own profession. This could not have happened without the complicity of physicians. And I might point out this is not the first time in history when physicians were uh, co-opted or engaged to perpetrate atrocities on humanity. Uh, it's happened before. Uh, yes, physicians, um, it, I think a big part of the problem now is that uh, about 80% of physicians in the United States are now employees. They now are either employed by large hospital systems, medical systems, or large physician groups. 
And therefore, they claimed, many of them claimed that they had no choice. They couldn't speak out. They would lose their jobs. Um, well, I, you know, I would point out that uh, the I was just following orders defense uh, didn't work well at Nuremberg 1.0, mm-hmm. and I don't think it'll go well at Nuremberg 2.0. Um, I, as I said, I, I have no, um, not a lot of good to say about my profession um, other than that the, the handful of us who spoke out from the beginning uh, who were derided, ridiculed, censored, uh, right. shamed, um, will ultimately end up on the right side of history. Uh, yeah. I talked to people and friends from the beginning of the pandemic. I'd sideline them at the grocery store or a cocktail party mm-hmm. and say, what are you talking? You know, masks don't stop. You know, you, I sat next to you in virology class, for God's sake. <laughs> what are you thinking? You know, removing right. every other chair in your waiting room. You know, what silliness? What, what, what has happened to you? And many of them would defend it. Uh, say 50% of them would defend it as if they were somehow caught in a fugue state of all of this, perhaps caught up in the fear of their own. Uh, fear is a very, very powerful uh, manipulator and intoxicant. And the other 50% claiming, as I said, you know, I, I can't, I've got a mortgage, Kelly, I can't afford to do this. I'm thinking, what, and, and I don't have a mortgage? You know, yeah. we, 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 we've got to stand up and do the right thing. And if we had led John, if we had led, you know, which people are either natural born leaders or they're not, if we had led and we were in a perfect position as physicians to do it, this would never have happened. But instead, physicians uh, drank the Kool-Aid along with the population. And and, and and one thing that I talk about a lot, um, and not just on this topic alone, but, you know, we talked a little bit before the show about, um, you know, healthcare in general and Obamacare and, and things like that and, and health insurance. And um, one thing that has to happen to change the healthcare system um, is that physicians need to take back control. Um, you know, administrators with PhDs and MBAs do not need to run healthcare. Doctors like yourself need to run healthcare. And it wasn't that long ago. You guys did 30 years ago. I think if they would have tried this 35 years ago, it wouldn't happen. Most physicians were independent. They were not owned by hospitals. They would have said, no, we're not going to do that. No, no, I I think you're right. And as I said, I think it's the the fact that the corporatization of medicine, the fact that so many physicians are employees rather than independent, that's part of it. And you were exactly right. 30, 40 years ago, hospitals operated for the convenience of physicians. Exactly. They were physician run. There was no such thing as the president uh, or the CEO of a hospital that wasn't a physician. Now... It's big business. It's big business, just like pharmacy is big business, has very little to do with healthcare. Uh, I got into it some years ago with the CEO of of the Cleveland Clinic, one of a very, very large uh, megalopolis of of, uh, healthcare. And uh, I said to him, I said, frankly, I would suggest to you the Cleveland Clinic knows not a thing about healthcare. And he looked at me aghast and I said, no, you're very good at disease care. You're good at disease care and you make money on disease care. And if people are really healthy, they're not in the Cleveland Clinic or any other hospital and you guys lose money. So I would submit that your motivation is to keep people in your hospital because that's how you get paid. Healthy people don't make the Cleveland Clinic or anybody else any money. 
So we have a pervert a system where the incentives are really uh, perverse. And so we have not a healthcare system in the United States. We have a disease care system. And that Mm -hmm. system makes a lot of money off of you. And the fatter and more sedentary and more depressed and more sleepless you are, the more money they make. So I am on a life's mission myself. And for my patients, my family, the people I care about, to uh, to rob the system of as much money as possible by being as healthy and proactive and self-directed as you can be. Well, the goal of our podcast uh, and the goal of our pharmacy, actually, which we've been doing that for almost 25 years, is to educate and empower individuals to take charge of their own health. Mm-hmm. And, and largely, if you do that, you're not going to have to seek a lot of health care because um, the best health insurance we have is not some kind of policy we can buy. It's right here. It's what mm-hmm. we it's what we eat. It's how we sleep. It's how we exercise. Um, that's the best health insurance we have, not some policy that we can buy. Um, we got a loyal viewer here that has good comment for you. Thank you, Dr. Victory. So refreshing. Um I think that the good segue that we're talking about discussing to segue into discussing the dangers of propagandized big pharma, um, because let's face it, um, big pharma makes money on these chronic diseases. Um, I, I mean, a big one, Jen, I talk about all the time and I know this, mm. we've got lots of haters about this one, but we do not believe in drugs to treat type two diabetes long-term. It's a lifestyle disease. Even if you're not obese, if you don't eat carbs, you will not have type two diabetes. Period. Right. So that, 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 that's correct. It, it, there are very few illnesses in the world that I can think of where I said if you simply make these lifestyle changes, you you will reverse it. And what a gift that is. Right. So there are so many things. Um, that I see on a, on a regular basis that I've had myself where there was no, I had nothing to do with it. I had nothing. I was just bad luck. It happened. Um, and you're going to get your handful of those and they happen. But if you are fortunate enough to have something that's a hundred percent preventable and a hundred percent reversible, which is essentially what type two diabetes is, you can do that and and do it without the use. As you said, you may need some short-term help with medication uh, while, while you get yourself sort of turned around, but why not do that without medications? There, are, there is no medication. I don't care if you're talking aspirin, Tylenol, the most simple medications all have side effects. So if you can avoid them, and avoid your reliance on them, it's far, far better. And type 2 diabetes is a perfect example. So tell us what your thoughts are about um, big pharma and medical schools and and pharmacy schools. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, unfortunately, like the hospital system, uh, you know, it's the corporatization of medicine. Um, Pharma really uh, has become a behemoth. Uh, there isn't, you cannot watch a television show without seeing, you know, a 30 minute television show, you probably see seven different advertisements, TV commercials for different medications. Okay. The budget that they need for advertising is enormous. Furthermore, their motivation is for you to take their medicine, not to get well so that you don't need their medication. Okay. 
more, almost all of these medicines you are seeing, whether it's something for psoriasis, something for diabetes, something for erectile dysfunction, something for whatever it is, they intend you to get on that medication and to take it in perpetuity. There is no interest in their, on their part at all, quite the opposite, for you to get off of that medication. Furthermore, they keep creating new medicines rather than allow, because as soon as a medicine goes off patent and is therefore can be formed in a generic version, there's no money to be made anymore. So therefore they have to create a new one, a better one, a newfangled one, a different formulation. Now it's a long acting one. Now it's combined <laughs> with another thing because, and that is a scam to keep yep. it on patent, to develop a new patent so that there isn't a generic form that's available. If you look at what happened during the pandemic, we had a host of medications, mm -hmm. safe, effective, dirt cheap, readily available medications like hydroxychloroquine, like ivermectin, that we knew for a long time would be highly effective against this virus. Yet in order to, number one, develop brand new or roll out brand new patented medications like remdesivir and then subsequently Paxlovid, and most importantly, in order to get the emergency use authorization on the vaccines, they had to claim that there were no medications available. You right. couldn't have hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin mm -hmm. be, you know, work for COVID because if they acknowledged that, they would never have been able by law to get emergency use authorization on those vaccines. They would have been forced to go through the prolonged and very diligent study of those vaccines, quote unquote, before they could launch them to the public. So I would submit to you millions and millions and millions of people died worldwide because they were not allowed to take, we were not allowed to give these medications. Why do I have this idea, this crazy idea that hydroxychloroquine would have worked? Let's ask none other than Anthony Fauci. In 2005, the NIH published a big study, 2005, about mm. chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine's efficacy against SARS-CoV-1, the SARS that hit in 2003. They proved and they knew that hydroxychloroquine is extremely effective against this, cla this class of viruses. Anthony Fauci in the NIH published it in 2005. So when SARS-CoV-2 hit, we said, well, they're similar. Let's try this very, very safe, you know, hydroxychloroquine is a drug that's been FDA approved since 1942. Right. It's been on the list of essential medications from the World Health Organization for decades. It is so safe. It's one of the drugs that we readily give with no concern to pregnant people. Okay. You know that pregnancies are sort of the last that we are most concerned about them. So you're talking about a drug so safe. It's available over the counter in almost every country other than the U.S. and Canada. People take it routinely for prophylaxis and treatment of malaria in, yep. you know, in the entire continent of Africa, you know, India, places. So we're talking about a, a remarkably safe drug. Yet the fact that it was not patented, therefore dirt cheap, 11 cents a pill, and very, very safe, readily available, that was terrifying 
to the vaccine manufacturers because you are going to prevent them from getting that EUA. And there was so much money to be made on those vaccines. And as I said, we are, we are living the result of big pharma's ability to manipulate the narrative, to manipulate, to propagandize this. And they had the buy-in. They had the buy-in of all the other players, big tech uh, platforms like, you know, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. And they certainly had the buy-in of the mainstream media. And why is that? As I said, look at the amount of money that big pharma pays to every news outlet, including the conservative ones, other than Newsmax, all of them, MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, they are all bought and paid for by Pfizer, Moderna, and the rest of big pharma. And look at this is a sad story. And I remember when this happened, uh, Wayne Bailey, he talked about remdesivir um, killing his wife in the hospital. And we've heard many stories like this. Yeah. And it is just, I've talked to ICU nurses that um, they left the hospital system because they felt so unethical what was happening and they had a name for remdesivir they called it run death is near because right once 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 they were on it about three days they went into multi-organ failure and died correct i mean remdesivir failed the last time they tried to use it it was uh, found to be so unsafe that they pulled it back uh they originally tried remdesivir for the treatment of ebola and, but it was killing people and it killed people. It was very clear. It caused kidney failure and then multi-system organ failure very quickly. Um, and so they tried to repurpose it now and roll it back out. And the only difference now was with COVID, they had the fear factor on their side. They were had mm-hmm. such a successful uh, propaganda campaign and made people think that they, you know, everyone's going to die. You know, your only hope is to hide in the basement, bathe in Purell, and hope that uh, you know a vaccine comes quickly. Uh, and they were successful in that. And therefore, uh, furthermore, people don't know, but hospitals were highly incentivized financially to code every admission as COVID. They got an additional uh, $14,000, $15,000 per patient who was admitted with a diagnosis of COVID, an additional $40,000 for every patient who died with a diagnosis of COVID on the death certificate, and Medicare paid an additional 20% on the entire bill, hospital bill, if remdesivir was given during the hospitalization. Well, and, and uh, this, you know, that's, that, that is, that is perverse. Uh, right. It is. And, and it is, there is a collusion, a cartel created between big pharma, insurance companies and hospitals. And, and I say this, and this is nothing personal about the people that work at hospitals, but I believe that they are guilty and there are blood, there's blood on their hands from this. They made a ton of money on this public non-public, private, for-profit, non-profit, um, small, big, they all made money on it. And they scammed the consumers. And um, I think in, I think they're evil institutions that are colluding with insurance companies to rip off the consumer. And I think the only good thing, if, if you can call this good, is that they've been exposed. And I'm hoping this exposure is going to make it so people realize that they need to be in charge of their own health and that they shouldn't just 
trust any hospital or any doctor because they have their best interest in mind. They need to do their own research and, and never, ever, ever, ever let your loved one go into a hospital by themselves. Ever, ever, ever. No, and well, it's really scary, Sean, because you'll recall they didn't let anyone else in. They didn't let, you know, you were sort of at uh, when normally you would have had an advocate in a son or a daughter or spouse at the bedside running interference. These people were hospitalized and they were isolated. They had no one there to advocate for them. Uh, I myself was hospitalized for an orthopedic, I, did, I, I was a uh, trauma <laughs> agent and got hospitalized for something that would have been relatively simple, had to have surgery. And I have only two allergies in my life. I, I'm allergic to polyethylene glycol, which happens to be a key component of the vaccines. Mm-hmm. And I'm allergic to tetanus toxoid. I, I, another, you know, I, I uh, had anaphylaxis to tetanus. Uh, and those are on the front of my chart. You know, when you go to hospitalized, yep. they put in big letters, you know, your allergies. While I was hospitalized, I had no less than 50. I am not exaggerating. Doctors, nurses come in during my hospitalization and say, Dr. Victor, you really need to get your, your COVID vaccine. And I said, have you looked at my chart? In front of my chart says I, I am allergic. I have anaphylaxis to polyethylene glycol. And their answer was, yeah, but you're here in the hospital. So if you have anaphylaxis, you know, we'll be able to treat you. I, can you, Why let me tell you, you it, want that? <laughs> can you, if, if I told you, unbelievable, well, I'm no. sorry, you have an allergy to penicillin. We're going to give it to you, but we're exactly. going to you after we give it to you. You would lose your license, Sean. I mean, so, so and, and I honestly, but I was in there, you're solo, you're isolated. You have no family there, no friends there, nobody there. I would sleep with one eye open. I'm thinking they're going to come in in the night and give me that dang shot, you know? And so, so it is, and I'm a physician who knows the system, who knew all of the studies. So I was able to avoid it only because I'm, but can you imagine if you were truly ill? I wasn't ill. I had an injury. I wasn't, you know, suffering with a pneumonia and, you know, COVID or whatever else. I was able to advocate for myself. The millions and millions of people who couldn't do that ended up not only getting vaccines they didn't want, vaccines they didn't need because they'd already recovered from COVID, or medications like remdesivir. Uh, They didn't get the medications that would have helped them, steroids, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, whatever else, you know, blood thinners, anticoagulants, the other things that would have saved them. I mean, this was really, really, I think, Evil is not too strong a word. Well, in a lot of ways, if you look at what happened, it was also politicians that were practicing as physicians. It was hospital CEOs practicing as physicians, Mm -hmm, big mm -hmm. pharma. You know, it was it was all across the board taking away the thought process on how to handle a patient. If they were practicing medicine, they would have looked at your chart. Right, right. Right. Well, that would be the no, first start. 
Yeah. Well, it's the, the, the point, Janet, is exactly right. Everyone became, you know, an expert. You had everyone on mainstream media mm-hmm. preaching, you know, what, that yep. you needed to be vaccinated because these vaccines would keep you from getting COVID. You wouldn't be able to transmit COVID. You wouldn't end up with the hospital with COVID. They're making fun of, deriding, ridiculing anybody who suggested, quote, horse paste, having no idea what these medications are, having no idea, understanding even what what it means for a medication to be FDA approved or to use right. something off label. Uh, you know, using medications off label, quote unquote, is a cornerstone of medicine. Upwards yeah. of 26, 27 percent of all prescriptions written are written off label, meaning well, for something for which the drug company didn't uh, pursue an indication. Well, think of all the medications that we've used before the FDA approval was stamped on them that still were very and still are effective. Right. you, you, You couldn't practice without them. Well, and, and the people need to understand that once a medication is FDA approved, say take hydroxychloroquine, as I said, FDA approved in 1942. What that means is it's that the FDA has determined it is safe for use in humans. If it's safe to use hydroxychloroquine to treat malaria, if it's safe to use hydroxychloroquine to treat lupus, if it's safe to tr- use hydroxychloroquine to treat, you know, any particular thing, it doesn't be rheumatoid arthritis. It doesn't become unsafe to use right. that all of a sudden no. when the patient has COVID. It doesn't miraculously become, your body doesn't say, oh, well, it was safe for everything else, but all of a sudden if, it, if it's COVID, it becomes unsafe. I mean, that's silly. Uh, and so we've done that all. The, once the FDA says it's safe, then doctors are free to prescribe it for whatever they think it might be useful for, including things that are off label. Well, the FDA even has in its own guidelines, um, and I might not be using the right term. It might be law. I'm not sure. Um, I'm actually having a pharmacist who is an expert in this subject come on our podcast in a few weeks, and we're going to talk about off label drugs because. Mm-hmm. Right now, the FDA is talking about using things off-label, but only specific things like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. Right. Um, right. Even though you know all the other drugs are okay, it's, it, they should just say it's not about off-label. It's about certain things off-label. But for years, the FDA's position was that they, they don't – as long as the drug has not been taken off the market um, right. because it caused harm – um, right. then the physician can use it um, at their own discretion Absolutely. For, for anything they, they anything. And, right. and if, if we stop that, there's a big problem. We will never progress in medicine ever. Well, because we'll think- if we think drug companies are going to find the right things to treat patients, we're, we're kidding ourselves. It's, it's right. the people on the front lines like yourself and like us as pharmacists that figure this stuff out, not drug companies that do a study to do one kind of little indication for, for some new drug. Right. We think about the number of people who take uh, drugs like gabapentin, which is an anti-seizure medication, and they take it for chronic pain. We use things like um, methotrexate is a chemotherapy agent for cancer that we use for psoriasis. We have medications for blood high blood pressure that we use to treat migraines and on and on and on. Okay, these are medications every day. And because once we know that the drug is safe, it can be repurposed for any number of things. So, but again, this is about 
they propagandized it and people mm-hmm. from the mainstream media to, as you point out, Janet, the CEOs of hospitals and politicians were all out there parading around parroting the narrative that had been, you know, indicated that they were supposed to follow. And everyone was saying, and you find people, you know, the, the average, you know, soccer mom was, was quoting these things. And you're saying you have no idea what you're talking about. You have bought into the propaganda and you're harming yourself. You're harming your families. You're harming your kids by not being willing to listen to reason. And unfortunately, I really feel badly for people because so much when you tie in the involvement of big tech, the fact that people were hard pressed to get access to the information is you you said, Sean, people should do their own research. It's tough because the research wasn't even available. You would, you know, try to try to um, search something and the studies wouldn't even come up. You couldn't even find them. Uh, And then I really do have to point out, I guess, one additional component to this is uh, understanding just how co-opted, how uh, corrupt the medical literature is now. The, The literature that I used to rely on as a physician the journals, JAMA, the Lancet, New England Journal of Medicine, British Journal of Medicine, they are all bought and paid for by big pharma. So much of what we are seeing in the medical literature cannot be trusted. If someone, you know, died and made me queen, I would take, you know, at the end of any medical study or journal uh, article are the conflicts of interest. I would take those conflicts of interest and make them above the title of the article. (laughs) I want that the first thing you see, because I can decide if I even want to read the damn study now, because based on what the conflicts of interest, who paid for this study? Well, you know, Jan and I, being a little bit rogue, we haven't trusted the studies for a long time. Good for you. And a perfect example of that, we've questioned for a long time, is, is statins. Statins for cholesterol. Oh, yeah. I, 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 don't buy, I don't buy the cholesterol scam at all. Right. I don't think cholesterol is what the problem with cardiovascular disease is in this country. And if it is, statins aren't working. I'll tell you that statins have been out for right. over 30 years now and cardiovascular disease is at an all time right. high killing more Americans than anything else. Yep. Um, and so if, if statins work so well and everybody should be on a statin, basically it's not <laughs> rational. It's not no. making sense. So, Oh, no. but you look at the studies and it had a 50% decrease in mortality, um, you know, or cardiovascular accidents. Well, maybe it did with with uh, absolute risk, but right. not relative right. not risk. relative risk. No, yeah. you're, you're, and, right. And although I don't even buy that. I, I, no. I mean, seriously, and I question hypertension. Um, yeah. I'm not saying that a hypertension emergency is not a problem. You're an ER doctor. You know that. If somebody has 200 over, over you know, 150 or right. whatever, you know, that, that's a problem. But you're, you're all of a sudden, they keep lowering the numbers too. Well, no, now it's 130 over 85. Right. I need to get a blood pressure medication. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I no, mean, and, and no, I, look at the rest of the person's body. Look at, right. are they overweight? Are they, you know, are they diabetic? Why don't we look at those things? We it, Medicine has become so black and white and big pharma caused that. Okay. Cholesterol 201, you're fine. Or cholesterol right. 200, you're fine. Cholesterol 201, you need a statin. Right, right. Seriously? No, and, and I think what other questions should I ask? <laughs> right. Well, I think part of this gets into this issue of the establishment of what they call clinical practice guidelines. 
uh, and standard of medicine. They tried to essentially make an algorithmic way to practicing medicine. It was initially sold to us these algorithms, these cutoffs, these, you know, yeah. 200 good, 201 bad right. to, to decrease the variability in care and to improve the, uh, the quality of care. Uh, also, it was to help be all of the sort of the, um, what we call physician surrogates, like nurse practitioners, physician assistants, those sorts of things to be able to practice because they don't have the same length or, you know, um, they don't have the same level of training as physicians right. had. What it and what it really is is it's an algorithmic way. It's a it's a cookbook style of practicing medicine yeah. that does not take into account specifically nope. the entirety of the patient. It does not look at that. It allows you to fundamentally come up with a bunch of numbers and then crank out what the medication protocol yep. should be for that patient. <laughs> um, it, it, there's nothing good about it. And you know, let me be very clear: electronic medical records are the same thing. The quality of the medical record that's created by an electronic medical record is horrible. It does not give you any idea of what's actually happening with the patient. What it allows is for the prescription of medications and for billing. That's their fundamentally billing modules. And scrutiny, like Janice said. So then then the insurance company can look at that medical record and say, hey, um, Dr. Dr. Victory, um, we noticed that your patient, your diabetic patient is not on XYZ drug. You need to prescribe this drug. Or Dr. Victory, we noticed that your patients, they only have a 70% vaccination rate. We will reimburse you more if you get up to 85%. Tell me I'm wrong. No, it's it's exactly right. The electronic medical record reduces the patient interaction to a set of drop-down boxes. And that allows the insurance company and pharmaceutical companies to parse the data and come up with, you know, to say exactly that. I have 72% of my diabetics are on this drug or, you know, 84% of my adult patients over this age have been vaccinated. They can crank out data. What it doesn't do is give any idea of what's going on. Sean Needham is a blank year old white male with a long history of this who presents today complaining of this. And here are all the things going on in his life. And here's what I found on the physical. And here's what I think based on my advanced training and knowledge is best for Sean. And here's the plan he and I made together as a physician patient team. They don't want any of that. Either give me drop, they want drop down boxes that they can query and that they can, you know, really incentivize you to behave as a physician in certain Mm -hmm. ways to prescribe certain medications to avoid. They want you to avoid the expense of things. No, Dr. Victory, we don't want you to send, you know, Sean for a sleep study or we don't want you to do X, Y or Z because that's expensive. We instead want you to put them on this medication. You know, and it is it is really a problem and it's happening. And this is the ultimate, you know, how to boil a frog. It doesn't happen overnight. It's right. happening very, very slowly, too slowly for the vast majority of people to really even see or understand what's happening. And we are getting so far down that slippery slope um, that it's going to be too late, unfortunately, uh, pretty soon for us to get back on, on level ground. Well, so let's talk about that. What, what do we do to fix it? Where do we go from here? 
Well, I do think, I think people have got to take more control and say, you know what, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, I, you know, believe more and more physicians, I think after this pandemic debacle, I think you're going to see a resurgence of people going into more of concierge practices, people going back to more private practices. Many of my own colleagues are no longer taking um, insurance and say, I'd rather have fewer patients have a larger group of patients who are interested in actually managing their own health rather than just, you know, get it, getting a pill for everything. So they go down from a practice of 2000 or 2,500 patients and say, fine, I'll, I'll do it. You know, I'll have a practice that has 300 patients, but 300 patients who are engaged don't, uh, and, and I won't take insurance. You're going to see a lot more of that. Um, I am hopeful that we will be able to really push back and fight. I'm, I am hopeful that there will be lawsuits related to this um, pandemic. I think we haven't seen the end of it. It really, I think, will boil down to whether or not people in Congress actually follow through and hold these people accountable. We know based on for example, documents that we have only because of aggressive FOIA requests, FOIA demands, we have now documents from everybody from the vaccine manufacturers to the FDA and the CDC that prove that they knew with regard to COVID, that they knew and they knew well in advance of the vaccines being launched on the public that they were going to be problematic. The CDC themselves not only anticipated problems with the vaccine, they anticipated such a huge increase in adverse events from the vaccines that they hired, they contracted with an outside consulting firm called Global Dynamics to manage what they anticipated would be a massive increase in adverse events reported to VAERS. The CDC, we now know, we have the documents to prove it, they anticipated upwards of a thousand adverse events a day would be reported. And they figured that they said that they thought 40% of those could be serious. Turns out global dynamics in the first three months, this they were contracted in August of 2020 before the vaccines were launched by December of 2020, well before the vaccines were available to the vast majority of people yeah. Global Dynamics said, it's not a thousand a day. We have more than 4,500 adverse events being reported per day. CDC kept that information from the public. They rolled those vaccines out with the narrative, safe and effective, safe and effective. Everybody get one. And the rest is history. It, it, it's unreal. How, how could we ever trust them again as healthcare professionals or as a general public? Right. How could you ever yeah. trust them again? I say to people, the, the CDC was intended to be a guidance uh, organization. They don't make laws. They have no legislative authority. Yet right. during this pandemic, they have been given, you know, and, and thus said the, saith the Lord, you know, all of a sudden the mm -hmm. CDC is now dictating what doctors, what doctors do. I can tell you in 35 years of practice, and I asked my colleagues this, there were many, many times, Sean, where I would sideline a fellow physician in the hallway and ask for advice. Many right. times where I'd call right. a physician from a yeah. different specialty and say, what would you do with this? Not once did I call the CDC. Not once <laughs> did I call the FDA. Or, or the governor I, of your state. Or the governor of my state. Thank you. <laughs> or the state medical board to get their advice on how yes. to practice a patient, right. you know, practice medicine. 
Um, physicians have given this up during the pandemic, and the public has been led to believe that the CDC is somehow the be-all, end-all. They are corrupt, and we now have the documents to prove they were not looking out for the health and welfare of the American public. No, I, I totally agree with that. Well, Jen, I have questioned the government for, oh, I'll speak for myself, but I think I'll speak for my wife too. But we've questioned the government and, and not trust them for a long time. And this just, you know, hammers that idea home. You know, we, we have to, we have to take care of ourselves and, um, you know, get our own information from good sources mm-hmm. and um, not trust the government because they don't have our best interest in, in, in mind. And, you know, a quote that one of my good friends um, posted on social media, it's like, you either know history or you trust the government. Right. You, yep. you can't do both. Right. And I mean, this, this over the last three years is just an example and all of us conspiracy theory people, and I've been called conspiracy theory person for many, many decades now. It's like a lot of this stuff's coming true. It's like, well, maybe you are right, Sean. Maybe we shouldn't trust the government. Oh no, you shouldn't. (laughs) Well, I've said from the beginning of this, the only difference between the true, you know, conspiracy theory and and, and the truth is about three months. Um, (laughs) Because every single thing that I said that people claim was a conspiracy has come true. And it was Ronald Reagan who said that the scariest words ever uttered were, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Uh, And and I hate to say, I hate to say that, um, you know, I am a true patriot. I I love this country. I love uh, what the, everything the United States has stood for. And I hate to see a pandemic and their ability to co-opt the fear, the fear right. of the American public change everything that we fought for here. People readily gave up their civil liberties. It was terrifying to watch. Uh, and I'm hoping that by exposing some of this, we will embolden people not to uh, fall prey to that again. Amen. So as we uh, wrap this podcast up, um, Dr. Victory, what do you have a passion for? Ah, well, in addition to to the truth and exposing, <laughs> I have a passion for health. I have a passion for health and wellness uh, for, for certain. Uh, it certainly has been, you know, my North Star in, in my life, but it's also trying to expose other people to that and to the amount of control they can take over their own lives that way. Uh, I'm a big outdoors person, um, so I, I spend much of my time in Northern Colorado where I have, uh, I'm out in the hinterlands, far off the grid with uh, horses and dogs and cats and, uh, and space to run around. Uh, and that keeps me centered. That's awesome. So if anybody has any questions uh, to follow up with you on, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Well, I'm associated with the website earlycovidcare.org, along with some other real um, uh, sort of just uh, warriors, people like Dr. Peter McCullough um, and uh, Pierre Corey and others who have been on the really the leading edge of this. So earlycovidcare.org, you can find me there. Um, The only social media that I am on is uh, Twitter at Dr. Kelly Victory. on Twitter, I was kicked off of all other platforms, YouTube, mm. Facebook, <laughs> Instagram early on in the uh, pandemic. Um, and so uh, I am on Twitter and very active there. Uh, so I, I try to answer questions and then I do this show 
regularly with Dr. Drew. Um, I do a show every Wednesday where I invite a guest of my own uh, on to talk with Drew and just trying to expose people to, to information that they would otherwise not see via the mainstream media. So you can look for me there as well. Yeah, we've seen you on there, and I'd love to be on that show with you uh, and just talk It'd about be great. Just continue this conversation because absolutely, Jen, I have a passion for this as well as you do, and we could talk for hours about it. So, um, I thank you so much for being on today. You've really helped realize our goal of at Health Solutions, which is to educate and empower individuals to take charge of their own health. So, thank you for speaking up, Doctor Victory. Well, thanks for having me. And I love what you guys are doing. I think you're 100% on the right track and God bless you for doing it. Um, it's easy to to fall into the money-making uh, that that uh, pharmaceutical, the pharmaceutical industry would offer you. But I, I think what you are doing is truly will land you squarely on the right side of history. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Those are kind words. Thanks. And, and thank you, listeners and viewers, for tuning in to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Tune in Monday for our regular scheduled show, 1230 to 1.30 um, Pacific Standard Time. Not sure who our guest is, but check it out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. Although today we don't stream on YouTube because we do not want to get censored on YouTube. And we knew they'd censor this. So. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much, listeners and viewers, for tuning in to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you. 